Matthew chapter 7, as we conclude the Sermon on the Mount this morning. Matthew chapter 7, beginning at verse 24. While you're turning there, let me uh, say this, that again about 2023, uh, Christ works through faithful people. So as we look forward to uh, the new year, as we pray for what God will do, remember he works through faithful people. Matthew 7, verse 24 is where I'll begin reading. Therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine and acts on them may be compared to a wise man who built his house on the rock. And the rain fell, and the floods came, and the winds blew, and slammed against that house. And yet it did not fall, for it had been founded on the rock. Everyone who hears these words of mine and does not act on them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. The rain fell, and the floods came, and the winds blew, and slammed against that house, and it fell, and great was its fall. When Jesus had finished these words, the crowds were amazed at his teaching. For he was teaching them as one having authority and not as their scribes. I'm using as an obvious title for these verses upon which to expound the word of God this morning, Two Builders. Two Builders. Jesus presents a spiritual contrast at the conclusion of his Sermon on the Mount. The two men build their lives on different foundations and have, as a consequence, different eternal destinies. These two people illustrate all who hear the call to salvation and their respective responses to it. The different responses reveal who is wise and who is foolish. The one who is wise is the first one we will look at this morning, and it will be our heading, a wise builder. In verse 24, we see Jesus talking about this wise builder. He has taken Jesus' words seriously. He has heeded the summons to enter the narrow gate and to live according to the demands of discipleship, which Jesus enunciates in the Sermon on the Mount. The demands of discipleship, which Jesus designates the narrow way, the narrow path. The wise builder does not, therefore, simply hear Jesus' words. He was not simply an auditor to the sermon that was delivered on that wonderful day from the gracious lips of our great and gracious Savior. He took those words to heart. In fact, he applied them to his life. This person, the wise builder, man or woman, is numbered among those who confess Jesus as Lord. When they say, Lord, Lord, they mean what they say. It is not an empty confession for those who put into practice Jesus' words. He does what Jesus says. He obeys the will of the Father, which is enunciated by Jesus, as I mentioned here in the Sermon on the Mount. 
and which really is synonymous with Jesus' words. Further, the wise builder is one who thirsts and hungers after righteousness. He desires holiness in his life. He wants purity in his life. He has a desire for righteousness in his life. That desire is not prompted from his flesh. That desire comes from the reality that he is a new creature. He is a person who has experienced the new birth. And because of the new birth, he desires these things that come from that new nature. He understands that Jesus' words will bring the realization of that desire of his to experience holiness righteousness in his life he is the person who as the text says acts on them Jesus' words the word acts 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 continually doing them is what the greek conveys here the man's lifestyle is one of habitual obedience to jesus christ when we say habitual we don't mean perfectly there's no one who perfectly obeys the lord in his life but the reality is that it is a habitual characteristic of the person who knows Christ. Now, I think it's necessary at this point to say that obedience to Jesus' words does not produce salvation. Rather, the opposite is true. Obedience is the fruit of salvation. It's the product of salvation. When a person has entered into a saving relationship truly with the Lord Jesus Christ, inevitably that comes from them is obedience. When there's justification, as Paul would write, there's also sanctification. When you've declared, been declared righteous, there will also be the reality of practical righteousness in the life. The person who's the wise builder, that Jesus is talking about here in verse 24. He loves Jesus. I think it's interesting we just sing about that. Uh, obedience to Jesus is connected to love for him. You may remember the bumper sticker that said, Honk if you love Jesus. Nowhere in scripture is love for Jesus reduced to such a trivial act as blowing a horn. That kind of simple, simplistic nonsense is utterly unscriptural and is rebuked by Jesus' own words because he tells us, he defines for us what love for him really entails. In John chapter 14, he lays it out here in the upper room discourse. He tells his disciples and all of us by extension what it means to love him. Now, when we sang, we love Jesus and want to tell him, that's good. We can praise him and adore him and express our love for him that way. But there has to be the concrete reality of obedience to him, right? If there isn't that concrete re or reality of obedience, then our words are simply empty. They're hollow. They're no more substantial than cotton candy. John chapter 14. 
and we can look at what Jesus says as we run through a few verses here that delineates clearly from his own lips uh, what it means to love him. John fourteen fifteen says, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. He didn't say, if you love me, you will feel a thrill about me. He said, if you love me, you'll have something running up down your spine. No, he says, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. Verse 21. He who has my commandments and keeps them is the one who loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by my father and I will love him and will disclose myself to him. Verse 23. Jesus answered and said to him, if anyone loves me, he will keep my word. And my father will love him and we will come to him and make our abode with him. That's the reality of what it means to love Jesus. Verse 24, he who does not love me does not keep my words. And the word which you hear is not mine, but the father who sent me. In other words, God, the father said, if you love Jesus, you'll love and you'll obey Jesus, my son. Doing what he commands. This is an acid test for whether a person really loves Jesus. It has nothing to do with a feeling. Though feelings are there because there is an affection for our Lord. Is that not right? We love him for what he has done for us. We do have affection for him because he died for us. He took our sins on himself on the, that tree. He bore our sins in his own body. He died in the, place, in the place for us. And we love him for that and his resurrection. And he's promised us a home in heaven. We love him for that. We can't help but have affection for Jesus. No one would love us like Jesus, right? So there is affection there, no doubt. No question whatsoever. But Jesus lets us know it goes beyond that. There has to be the reality, the concrete reality of obedience to me. Now in 1 John, if you'd like to look there with me. 1 John chapter 2. John, one of the disciples, was in the upper room and he heard our Lord's discourse there and he lays out for us further uh, amplification of what this means to love him, love the Lord Jesus Christ. 1 John chapter 2, and we'll see the reality here. Obedience is a test for genuine salvation. That's what I want to just slip in here right now. Obedience is a test for genuine salvation. I want you to get that. We live in an age when people all claim uh, to be saved. People claim to be followers of Jesus Christ. They claim to be Christians. They make innumerable claims about a relationship to Christ. But the real test is, do you keep his commandments? Obedience. Obedience. And that's what the Bible, it's the authority, right? It's our authority. How do we know if what we claim is genuine? Well, we need to look at what the text says. 1 John chapter 2, verse 3. By this we know. And when he says no, he's talking about an experience here. The experience of our life that we have come to know him. If we keep his commandments. Know him. Now, those two words there means this, savingly believe on Christ. We have savingly believed on Christ if we keep his commandments. That's what the text is teaching us. Keep, in verse 3, keep 
It's present tense. Watchful obedience. <laughs> we're looking to make sure we can, we're keeping them. Then you'll notice in uh, the word commandment, the precepts and directives of Jesus. What Jesus lays out, for example, in the, in the Sermon on the Mount, what he lays out through his apostles in the epistles, what do we do? We keep his commandments. We're obedient to him. Salvation is a willing obedience to Christ's teaching. The one who says, I have come to know him, verse 4, and does not keep his commandments is a liar. And the truth is not in him. Isn't that clear? That is clear as black and white, right? Anyone can make the claim. The claim is unsubstantiated if there isn't the reality of obedience, the habitual reality of obedience to Jesus Christ. People, and the reason I'm harping on this, you might think, is this, because there are too many people who are deceived, and we'll see this a little later on here in this sermon. Too many people are deceived, thinking they're on their way to heaven, and do understand everybody talking about heaven ain't going there. Because they think because they say they are followers of Christ. That legitimizes their profession. No, 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 no. No, 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 no. You got to get away from that. You got to say, wait, wait, wait. What is the Bible? The Bible is the definitive authoritative word for us to know. Am I really what I think I am? You need to know that. People are being deceived. By the multitude of people, self-identified uh, evangelicals taking a survey, and they say crazy stuff like denying the deity of Christ. Are you serious? You call yourself a Christian, but you deny the deity of Christ. You're not a Christian. Amen. You're denying the word of God. You're going to die in your sins. They say all oh, men are born innocent. No, they're not. We all come here with a sin nature. Amen. Give a baby time and he'll, you'll, he'll show you what he's really like. <laughs> Amen. Go and tell the truth and shame the devil and, and his crowd. No, no, no. We, we, we have a, a fallen nature and our fallen nature expresses itself in sins in just a matter of time when that is seen. We have to look to the scripture. The scripture is our authority. Scripture is our authority. Now, back in Matthew chapter uh, 7, where our Lord is talking about the wise man, and uh, this wise man who hears Jesus' words and he acts on them, Jesus says here in verse uh, 24, may be compared to a wise man who built his house on the rock. Now, those three words, may be compared, uh, it can be translated like this from the original language, will be like. And I like translating that way for the simple reality. reason is this, the future tense of the Greek verb informs us that Jesus is talking about a future point. He is talking about uh, eschatological judgment, eschatology, the doctrine of last things. He is talking about the judgment to come. That's what he's referring to. The future season called that day that we looked at last week. We see that in verse 22. That day. Time of judgment. Season of judgment. The, the wise man who hears Jesus' words. He sits in church. He listens. But he doesn't get up and go outdoors and forgets it. He acts on them. He doesn't just listen to the sermons. Oh, that's a nice sermon, Pastor. And I should say, are you going to do it? 
will be like a wise man who built his life or his house, which is his life, on the rock. The foundation of his life is the rock, obedience. Now, this man is wise. Phenonymous is the word in the original. Phenonymous is rendered in Matthew elsewhere as sensible and as prudent. The word is used to describe those who are wise because they prepared for his second coming through faithful service and obedient living. That's how you know you're wise. You say, Jesus is going to come. And if he doesn't come in my lifetime, I'm going to go to him. So in either case, you're going to prepare yourself. How do you prepare yourself? By faithful service and obedience. We see this connection clearly. I'm having you turn some verses this morning. Y'all don't mind that, do you? That's a good thing. Matthew chapter 24. Matthew chapter 24. I want you to see this, this word wise, this, how it is used here. And you'll see in what I just said is validated by what the text teaches. Matthew chapter 24, verse 44. Now, do understand, uh, Matthew 24 and 25, both these chapters contain the Olivet Discourse, Jesus' discourse on his second coming in response to the question posed to him by his disciples, a sign of your coming. So Jesus is laying it out for them. He is laying out for them what it will be like, things are going to go on. And here, in this portion of the scripture, he is talking about what do you do, essentially, while you wait for the coming of the Son of Man? What do you do while you're waiting for me to come? How do you live your life? Verse 42. Let's look there. Matthew 24, therefore be on the alert for you do not know which day your Lord is coming. But be sure of this, that if the head of the house, here's a parable, had known at what time the night the thief was coming, he would have been on alert and would not have allowed his house to be broken into. For this reason, get this, based on what he just said, you must also be ready for the son of man is coming at an hour when you do not think he will. Who then? Is the faithful and front of us are wise, are sensible, are prudent slave whom his master put in charge of his household to give them their food at the proper time. Blessed is the slave whom his master finds so doing when he comes. In other words, you've been delegated a responsibility as a child of God, as a slave of God. Verse 25 and then you're doing what you should be doing. And guess what? You are blessed if you're caught doing what you should be doing when Jesus shows up. Oh, you hear Jesus. You know, I was just finishing up feeding the guys. <laughs> now, what, what are you saying? You're faithful in the discharge of the stewardship that he's given you as a child of God. As you're waiting on him to come, you're doing what he's called you to do. You know he's coming. You believe what he says. And that belief motivates you to be obedient to him. You're faithful in doing the work. In this parable here is a household in charge. There's things in the house to take care of the servants. You're doing what you're supposed to do. And you're doing that and Jesus comes. You're going to be blessed. People like that are wise. Jesus gives another parable. You're familiar with it. Chapter 25. He says this. Then the kingdom of heaven will be comparable to ten virgins who took their lamps or torches really. And went out to meet the bridegroom. Five of them were foolish. 
and five were Phronimos, our prudent. Now, you know what happened. You know the parable, don't you? The bridegroom delayed his coming, but he finally shows up. And the bridegroom comes, and guess what? The five foolish virgins didn't have oil for their torches. You know what? They weren't ready. They had a veneer of faith. They had a veneer of following Christ, but they weren't ready. The wise ones were ready. They were genuinely believers. Now, you say, well, how do you know they weren't believers? Check out the language. Verse 12 of Matthew 25. Verse 11. Later, the other virgins also came saying, Lord, Lord, open up for us. Where have we heard that before? Similar language. But he answered, truly, I say to you, I do not know you. Mm. The same language. Jesus uses in Matthew chapter 7 verse 23 I don't know you I don't have a saving relationship with you we don't have a relationship that's why they're called foolish foolish of course Jesus is the bridegroom in the parable and he comes So the foundation, back in Matthew chapter uh, 7, the foundation that this man laid for his life was nothing other than these words of mine, which the rock symbolizes. The rock symbolizes building one's life on Jesus' words as a response of salvation that has transpired in the life. John Rapone is a pastor He wrote a hymn, and we're familiar with it here. He got it right in these lyrics. How firm a foundation, ye saints of the Lord, is laid for your faith in his excellent word. End of quote. True. Now, when you build your life on obedience to Jesus Christ, which is expression of genuine salvation, you will notice something in verse 25. Jesus says, what is the outcome? And the rain fell, and the floods came, and the winds blew, and slammed against that house. These forces of nature come. Now, uh, let me uh, let you know something about this. These forces, uh, forces of nature have been interpreted differently by different people in the history of biblical interpretation. Some have seen this as pertaining to the trials and tribulations of life. The one who builds his, uh, his life on the word of Christ When the trials and tribulations in life comes, his life will stand. When he's tested, he'll be able to hang in there, if you will. This is true. Oh, yeah, that's true. There's something about when you've, uh, you've, you're living for the Lord and you're growing and you're trusting him. Those trials and tribulations, they, they will inevitably come into life and you will be able to stand firm. Yes. But that's not what Jesus is talking about here. He's not talking about that at all. We have to ascertain the meaning of our Lord's words here by the context in which we find them. The immediate context tells us that Jesus is talking about the judgment to come. He's not talking about temporal stability in life when you have a trial and a tribulation. He is talking about the judgment to come. That's what the context is about. 
This is the immediate context, the, uh, the, the whole, the verses that precede, that lead up to it. Ah, that's what you've been addressing, Jesus. And then we need to look at the context biblically. What else in here? Now, just think about it. In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus talked about Gehenna, or hell, fiery hell. He's talked about that. In this very passage, in the context, he says in Matthew chapter 7, verse 19, every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. He's not li- talking about literal trees. The trees are referencing this, a symbol of false believers, false prophets, and they will be thrown into the fire of divine judgment. When Jesus says in chapter 7, verse 22, that day, We explored that and we found that that day is the future season of judgment. Verse 23, again, when Jesus said, I never knew you, depart from me. He's talking about judgment. So when you look at the context, you say, what has he been talking about when he talks about this kind of thing, a storm coming and slamming against us? Well, based on what he's been talking about, he must be talking about future judgment. That's how you interpret scripture. Get the context right. You get the context right, you won't mess up with your interpretation saying the Bible teaches something that doesn't teach there. Don't yank it out of its context. Look at the context. Amen? Amen. Oh, you guys are going to get an A. But not only immediate context, we can even look at the bigger um, biblical context. These words are not given by our Lord in isolation from what has been addressed previously, all the way back into the Old Testament. The Old Testament. May I share a little bit with you? All right, y'all voted for it. <laughs> Jeremiah. You're going to write these down. Jeremiah 23, verses 19 through 20, talks about a storm in part of that text. And the storm there is talking about the coming Babylonian judgment. He's not talking about your personal trials and tribulations. He's talking about judgments coming upon the Judah because of Judah's sin. Judgment from God. Isaiah 28, verses 17 through 22. In that part of that, that text there, we find waters, flooding waters. Ah. That sounds like our text this morning, does it not? It's talking about literal judgment. Using the words of storm. And which would include a wind and which will include flooding. Ezekiel chapter 13. I'm going to look at that one and read it. I want to give you a taste. You can write it down as well. But let me just give you a taste. Ezekiel 13, verses 10 through 16. And I want to give you an understanding of what the, what's being taught there. Ezekiel, he is with um, the exiles from Judah in Babylon. And this Jerusalem, the capital, is going to fall. And of course, they didn't want to see that happen, those Jews there. But let me show you what the Word of God says. Ezekiel chapter 13, verse 10. Verse 9, let me just sum, give you a synopsis. The false prophets being given lying divinations, they're contradicting the word of God. Enough said for that. Verse 10, it is definitely because they have misled my people by saying, peace, 
When there is no peace and when anyone builds a wall, behold, they plaster it over with whitewash. You want to cover up the defects, the problems. You put whitewash on it, like we say today, whitewashing stuff. That's what the false prophets did. So tell those who plastered over with whitewash that it will fall. A flooding, there's the language, a flooding rain will come and, and you, O hailstones, will fall and a violent wind break out. Behold, when the wall has fallen, which protects... A city, by the way. Will you not be asked, where is the plaster which, which you plastered it? Thus says the Lord God, I will make a violent wind break out in my wrath. There will be also a, my anger, a flooding rain and hailstones to consume it. What our Lord is talking about here is not a literal uh, storm. He is talking about the Babylonian judgment that God is going to use the Babylonians in judging the city of Jerusalem. And the wall will not be protected. Not protect them. That's what he's talking about. Not a little rain. Not a literal flood. Not a literal storm. That's the language of imagery. To indicate judgment. There are other texts like that in the Old Testament. That is what Jesus is talking about here. When he uses this imagery to talk about a house that's been slammed against by these forces of nature. But back in Matthew chapter 7, the man who built his house on a rock, his life, on obedience, was unaffected by the final judgment. It won't touch the child of God because the child of God is given that evidence of genuine salvation which exempts him from the final judgment that will come upon the unbelievers. That's why his life will stand. Now Jesus transitions from the wise builder to the a foolish builder. Verse 26. Everyone who hears these words of mine and does not act on them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. It is utterly foolish to hear Jesus' words and disregard them. The man who simply hears but doesn't apply the words of Jesus, does not act on them, no doubt thinks he's a Christian. He thinks he's a follower of Jesus. He doesn't intentionally build his house or his life so that it will fall. His confidence evidently is in himself. So unlike the wise builder, he doesn't build according to divine specifications. Instead of listening to Jesus and building his life on it, he sat in church or he heard a sermon or he he heard a Bible lesson or whatever it was, but he disregarded. said, well, yeah, that's all fine. I I believe in Jesus, but I'm going to build my life elsewhere on something else. He doesn't obey Jesus. His life is marked by disobedience. He demonstrates his lack of submission to Jesus' authority over his life. Therefore, indicating he is unregenerate. He may call him Lord. But. He doesn't. Yield to his authority. He is merely a professing Christian. 
people who profess to be followers of Yahweh contradict their claim, though they may listen to God's word, they may hear it taught, they may hear it preached, uh, explained and read, and they may even enjoy it and do understand the Old Testament has um, an example of this. And you might know, I know where it is. Um, Ezekiel, again. Ezekiel 33. People who are uh, exiled <laughs> from their country in Judah to Babylon, they've experienced the judgment of God. His word was fulfilled. And you would think they'd want to, they got their ears open, as it were, so they can hear and obey. <laughs> Ezekiel 33, verse 30. God is talking to his prophet. But as for you, son of man, your fellow citizens who talk about you by the walls and in the doorways of the houses, speak to one another, each to his brother, saying, Come now, hear what the message is from, that comes forth from the Lord. They come to you as people come and sit before you as my people and hear your words, but they do not do them. For they do the lustful desires expressed by their mouth. And their heart goes after gain. You see, lust and greed was really in their heart. They're not interested in obeying and doing the word of God. But they listen to the sermon. Behold, God continues speaking to Ezekiel, you are to them like a sensual song by one who has a beautiful voice and plays well on an instrument. For they hear your words, but they do not practice them. God says, Ezekiel, you're no more than entertainment for them. Your beautiful voice. That's what your prophesying is like to them. They show up to hear you entertain them with the word from the Lord, but they have no plan whatsoever to put it into practice. So it was true in Israel. Same in the church as well. And when I say church, I mean church writ large. The universal church. There are people who will show up. And they'll hear God's word. But they're not doing it. They'll swear to you that they're Christians. James 1. We'll add the New Testament to it. What we just saw in Ezekiel. James chapter 1. Explain a little bit of this. Verse 22. James says, But prove yourselves doers of the word, and not merely hearers, who delude themselves. This is a warning. It's obvious. If a person isn't doing the word of God, they're just hearers, they're in self-delusion. Is that not what the text is saying? They're deluding themselves. 
This is a warning to professing Christians about self-delusion. Delude means to reason beside or alongside, one commentator writes, and therefore refers to incorrect reckoning or reasoning, or reason. False reasoning. They think because I've heard the word, I'm okay. No. That's delusional. Faith doesn't simply hear God's word, it acts on it. A faith that only hears but doesn't act is a dead faith. And that faith can't save. James chapter 2 verse 14 tells us this. Now this man, this foolish man in James, uh, in Matthew chapter uh, 7, doesn't act on the words, he's be like the foolish man. And let me explain foolish. Maros is the word. doesn't refer to one's intellectual capacity. Rather, portrays someone who rebels against divine authority. Jesus, therefore, is commenting on such, pers- such a person's spiritual and moral condition. A person who is not if intellectually deficient, but a person who uh, is rebellious against the authority of God expressed in the word of God. They, they won't do it. They disregard it. They ignore it. The reality is they're on the broad path. They're on the broad way. And they're building their house on sand. Sand which is not a suitable superstructure. It's unstable. What the sand may be, self-satisfaction, self-fulfillment. They're pursuing this thing and that thing. They're not pursuing obeying Christ. They're wanting to do, I want to do this, I want to do that. Yet they call themselves Christians. They're self-righteous. There's an intellectual acceptance of the gospel. Yes, I believe that Jesus died, was buried, and raised from the dead. But their life isn't coming into conformity increasingly to the commands of Christ. They don't know him. They don't love him. They're deceived. Jesus saying, I tell you, a person who is not building his her life on the rock, on my words, in obedience, is building on sand. And the inevitability of divine judgment is coming. No one's going to escape. When it comes, Jesus said, the same things he said in verse 25, he says in verse 27, but in this case, When all those judgments slammed against that house or came against that life, the house representing the life, it says, and great was its fall. The collapse is complete. Would you not say that house was destroyed? That's what you call destruction. Jesus here really illustrates the word that he used in Matthew seven thirteen about those who are on the broad road that leads to destruction. He used the word destruction there. And here is a graphic picture of destruction. And I need to remind you, when Jesus used the word of destruction in Matthew seven thirteen, he is talking about, not talking about extinction or annihilation, but to total ruin and loss. The loss 
of well-being, not the loss of being. This is a graphic way. This is a symbolic way. This is a way of declaring that person will experience eternal destruction. They don't cease to be. They just cease having well-being. Now Jesus is told those people heard him the first time and everybody subsequently how things are going to happen. Verse 28, Jesus finished his words. Sermon's over. The crowds were amazed at his teaching. Struck out of oneself, astounded. They had never heard any preaching like this. It's comprehensive, it's insightful, it's profound. And they said, for his teaching is one having authority. Authority. See, he didn't teach like the scribes. See, what the scribes did, they quoted a previous scribe, a previous rabbi for their authority. Jesus didn't do anything. He said, no, 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 no. I am the authority. I don't quote some rabbi. I don't quote Reverend somebody. I am the word. Made flesh. I descended from heaven. John 3.13. I am the one who is in face to face. Communion with the father for all eternity. I have come and I'm telling you how things are. I have an authoritative word. That is I have the final word. Better listen to Jesus. You better pay attention to what he says because he's none other than God in the human in human flesh. So you better listen to his authoritative word. Amen. And if he says this is the way it is, you better believe it's the way it is. Don't you fool yourself. <laughs> How are you building your life? I'm not asking you what your profession is. I'm saying, how are you building your life? Is it on the rock? Is it on sand? Let us pray. Our God and our Father, as we contemplate the eternal truths that have been given to us by your son, the eternal son of God, who stepped out of eternity, became one of us, remaining God, God in human flesh, and has told us divine truth. May everyone who hears this today, or heard this today, and hears it in the future, may it um, minister to our hearts and correct our misperceptions and misconceptions and help us to live more faithfully even out of gratitude for the disclosure of the truth of genuine salvation. And as we have opportunity to declare to others who are perhaps deceived and deluded, help us to 
lovingly articulate these truths to them for their deliverance from false confidence. They may trust the true gospel, have their lives changed, and their destinies consequently changed as well. We pray for someone here this morning who is not yours, not a child of God. We pray you open their eyes. They may believe the gospel message and come to true faith in Christ as we live in your truth. In the name of Christ, I pray. Amen.